Assalamualaikum. It's a pleasure to be here tonight with all of you in cold Chicago. Uh, Alhamdulillah, I flew in from Phoenix this morning. And uh, it's always, mashallah, a blessing uh, to visit Dar es Salaam. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless and accept from all those who helped contribute and facilitate this institution and who teach here and who learn here and who pray here. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gather all of us together in Dar es Salaam, the real Dar es Salaam, with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Ameen. So tonight, inshallah, we're going to cover a topic that I think most of you may not have had exposure to previously, uh, but maybe I'm wrong. So I'll start with just a, a question. How many of you have attended a seminar, workshop, khutbah, halaqa on the topic of inheritance and estate planning previously? Okay, mashallah. So some. Still a small percentage, but some. This is a topic that impacts every single one of us. 100%. Every one of us is going to die. And one of the rules is that you don't get to take anything with you. And you don't have to be Muslim to accept this principle. A person who is an atheist cannot deny that they're going to die. They don't have control over when, where, how. And they have no ability to control the, their wealth after their passing. Right? This is amazing. This is one of the things that someone can claim to be arrogant and claim that, you know, they don't believe in a God. But ultimately, they will give in to this principle that I don't have control over when is my time. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us a death on Iman. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have mercy on our brothers and sisters in Palestine. As this is in top and center of all of our minds, as we think about death and they face death in a very real moment by moment uh, time. Uh, but this is an obligation that we have to plan for. And one of the differences between us and people who live overseas, and this question brother just asked me a minute ago, is why do we have to plan when everything is laid out in the Qur'an? Why do we have to plan when everything is laid out in the Qur'an? And the answer to that question is because we live here. Because we live here in a society where the default rules are not Islamic, are not based on Sharia, if you do not plan, then the rules of the state will apply and those rules are not Islamic. Okay? So this is the principle. You might say, well, I don't know anybody in Pakistan or in India or in Egypt or in Syria who wrote a will. Men, maybe that's true. But they don't have to. Because the default rules 
our sharia in all of those countries. Whether it happens or whether there's lulm and whether there's fights, that's a different question. But the default rules in Muslim majority countries and even minorities where that are sizable in places like India uh, are default rules of sharia for Muslims. But we live in a place where that's not the case. And if you intend to fulfill this religious obligation, which we all should have and which we're going to talk about tonight, then you have to take preemptive steps to do so. So I just want to make that principle very clear from the outset is why are we talking about this? Because if we don't, then the state will have its own plan. And that plan is not going to be consistent with our wishes, our rules, and the rules of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the presentation tonight is titled How to Protect Your Family, Leave a Legacy, and Fulfill Religious Obligations. And inshallah, the goal is to talk for about one hour so that you have a frame. Inshallah, we're going to go until nine o'clock. And I'm almost sure, I'm almost certain that you're going to have a number of questions. And I'm going to ask you to hold your questions. Um, we are going to have a something where you can type in your questions. What is this called? Slido. Slido. Okay. So I never used it, but um, it's a community is familiar. So you're going to be able to write up your questions. I'm going to see them at the end, and then we're going to address some of them. But the vast majority of them we're not going to be able to address tonight. We're actually going to address them tomorrow after Fajr. So this is a hook for coming to Fajr, inshallah. The second part of this program will be after Fajr, inshallah. Okay? So the, the, the theory to practice questions which are inevitably going to come up in your mind as we go through this, uh, you can ask them uh, on Slido, and we'll get to some of them today, but inshallah we'll address some of them as well tomorrow morning uh, after Fajr. So... <clears throat> As I said, we're going to talk for about one hour, inshallah, on what is estate planning. Terminology is important, right? What does it mean? When we study fiqh, the first thing you learn is the terminology. Like, what do these words mean? If they mean different things to different people, then we don't understand. And the same thing is in, you know, law. So when somebody says estate planning, what does that mean? What is that referring to? How does, that, how does one understand that? And then who needs an estate plan? Again, is this something just for very rich people? Is this something for old people? Is this something that is not relevant to me? And I'll tell you, most of the time when I tell people I'm an estate planning attorney, they say, oh, that's really cool, mashallah. I will tell my friend. <laughs> and why do they do that? Because he needs an estate plan. I don't, right? Everyone says, you know, I'm just a basic person. I don't have much. It doesn't matter. You have much or don't have much. You're old, you're young, whatever the case is. We're going to talk about who this is relevant to and for. And then what makes a plan Islamic? The title was Islamic estate planning, right? Islamic estate planning. So, you know, is it just put the halal stamp on the will and that makes it Islamic? Or is there something to it, right? We're going to talk about what does it mean for something to be Islamic or Sharia compliant in this case? Uh, and how do we do that? And then we'll talk about moving again from theory to practice. This is one of the areas, very interestingly in Sharia, that involves both uh, Islamic law as well as uh, secular law. In other words, when it comes to... When it comes to uh, so how are we going to do this? We're going to go to slido.com and you're going to enter this code. 
2732782. Okay. So it's not going to be on the screen, right? It's not going to be on the screen. So you're going to just have to write this down right now. Okay. It's, you're going to go to slido.com, which is S-L-I-D-O.com. And I think this applies to everyone who's online as well, right? They can also write these questions. So if you put them in YouTube, I'm not going to see them. Um, so if you have a question, you can put it in slido.com. And the code is going to be 2732782. Okay. If you don't have questions, that's fine too. Okay, so 2732782, and the website is slido.com. What I'll do is I'll mention it again in a few minutes, okay? As your questions come up, I'll, I'll mention it again. Now, what I was saying is, when it comes to salah, or zakah, or hajj, they have no hook with respect to secular law, right? You don't need to know anything about the rules of the land when it comes to salah. Alhamdulillah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed us to live in a place where we can come to the masjid and you can fulfill your religious obligations. And the state has nothing to do with it. Right? And the same goes for zakat and same goes for hajj. But when it comes to this issue, you have to understand the rules of the law of the, law of the land that you live in. Because it's impossible for you to ensure that your inheritance is distributed according to sharia if you don't take the secular tools or you don't take advantage of the secular tools to do so okay like you can't i mean you can hope that you know my family will take care of things and maybe they will inshallah but the more likely scenario is that it will not be done islamically in the absence of a plan and that plan has to be whatever the rules of the state and the country are with respect to how you create that plan. Not to what that plan says. The state will be deferential to what you want to do if you take the right steps to do it. Is this point clear? If you take the right steps, then you can do whatever you want. If you don't take the steps, then some default rules will apply, which is necessary in any society. Every society has to have a plan for what to do with people's money when they die. In the absence, it would be chaos. Right? If everybody could just rush to the person's house and steal their things, that would be a big problem. So every state has to have some rules. Right? One rule might be the state takes everything. One rule might be the wife takes everything or the husband takes everything. One rule might be some various combinations. One rule might be the person can say whatever they want. And so every state has a rule and Sharia has its rules. And in this case, in order to apply the Sharia, we have to understand what are the state processes for doing so. So that's why I say components of an estate plan. Meaning, what are the documents you need? Right? Everybody says, I need a will. Everybody's heard this, oh, I got to make a will. Okay? Is that enough? Okay? What is that will going to accomplish? How does that will correspond with the titling of your house or the beneficiary designation on your 401k? That's all things you got to understand and think about as you uh, create these things. And then Q&A. Okay. So now, one thing I want to mention, uh, as the Sheikh was explaining in Salatul Jum'ah, in the bayan, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made these rules extremely clear in the Qur'an. In fact, among all of the obligations of the Qur'an, 
inheritance is the most explicit. So if you look in the Quran, you'll see Aqimu Salah, Atu Zakah, Kutiba Alaikum Siyam, Atimul Hajja wal Umrata Lillah. Allah says, pray, establish prayer, give zakah, fast in Ramadan, go for Hajj. But He doesn't give you all the details of how to do so in the Quran itself. Okay? But when it comes to inheritance, it's very, very explicit. It's very explicit. Allah Himself says, and we'll come to these ayat, which again highlights the significance of this obligation. And why do you think that is? Why do you think it's given such a significance? We heard in Jum'ah that the Prophet ﷺ says that تَعَلَّمُوا الْفَرَائِدْ that learn and wa'allimuha teach learn and teach inheritance rules fa'innahu nisful ilm aw kama qal that it's half of all knowledge half of all knowledge that's a very high level half of all knowledge why do you think that is why is this so important what's that life after death okay This is one thing, it impacts everybody. Everybody. And it can cause a lot of fighting. Is that just hyperbole or has people ever seen a fight about inheritance before? How many of you have seen a fight about inheritance before? Every day. <laughs> That's a lot. So, so the point here is everybody is impacted by inheritance. You are either going to be a warith, you're either going to be an heir of somebody else or you're going to be Passing away, right? The, the, the person who passes away and you're going to leave behind the tzadikah, you're going to leave behind wealth. It impacts everyone. And there are so many disputes about inheritance. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala orders these in the Quran because they have a function of ordering society. And if these rules are followed, then the society will be structured in a certain way. Similarly, one of the points about nisful ilm, half of all knowledge, which is very interesting, is that Half of all things, half of all knowledge, you don't find this half of all knowledge when it comes to salah or zakah, right? It doesn't say pray because it's half, learn the rules of salah, it's half of all knowledge, even though salah is the most important thing, right? But half of all knowledge when it comes to inheritance, one of the explanations is that everything else you learn, you have to apply before you die. Okay? No matter what else you learn, you learn tahara, you learn salah, you learn zakah, you learn hajj, you learn mu'amalat, you learn everything, transactions. They all have to do with things that you are responsible for doing while you are alive. What's the only thing you have to do after your death? Inheritance. Inheritance doesn't come into play until you die. Right? Your wealth is supposed to be distributed according to these rules. You obviously are not doing it while you're alive. You're doing it after your death. You're not there. Which means that you have to create a system for that to happen. Okay? Part of that is tarbiyah. Part of that is teaching your kids. Part of that is raising your family the right way so that they don't fight. Absolutely. That's part of it. That's a big part of it, actually. Is explaining to them that this is our system. These are the rules. This is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has commanded. This is what your expectations are. These are your rights and your responsibilities. But part of it is also legally creating mechanisms to do so. Okay? So, what is an estate? It's Friday night, and I would like to make this somewhat interactive. 
so that we have a little bit um, uh, of, of a conversation rather than me lecturing. So, what is an estate? Anything which has value. Anything else? Anybody else? Yes. Okay. Um, okay. So basically, the way to think about this, when we say estate planning, the simple way to understand this is your stuff. Your? Your stuff. <laughs> okay, let's make it really simple. Everything you have, everything you have, as well as what? Everything you? No. You owe, okay? So a big part of this planning is assets and liabilities, okay? Not just the things you have, but the things you owe to other people. So planning for all that you have, that you will have, that you might have, and also whatever you owe to other people, to other institutions, whatever types of mortgages or loans or student loans or money you borrowed from your brother or whatever the case may be, halal or haram, whatever the issue is, money that is owed to somebody else, we've got to account for it. We've got to make sure that we are thinking about it. Most people think it's like some giant castle, right? When you think of the word estate, you normally think of something like this. But it's actually a lot simpler. It's whatever you have, right? It could be a condo. It could be a car. Uh, uh, so it might not be a Tesla. There was a lot more Teslas. I did think the last presentation was in California, so that was like Tesla Central. But whatever the case may be, you know, for our sisters, jewelry uh, that you might have put in the bank that you haven't touched in decades, that's part of your estate. That is something that has to be distributed post-death, right? In the fiqh terms, your tariqa, whatever is left behind that needs to be distributed uh, upon your death, okay? That's what we're planning for. We are planning for whatever we have at the moment that we pass away. So then what are we trying to do? When we think about estate planning, what are the goals? When somebody says, I want to do estate planning, how many of you, actually, I should maybe ask the question differently. How many of you have created an estate plan? Like three people? <laughs> okay. So, um, even if you haven't or you're not raising your hand, um, what are some of the goals? And I don't just mean religious goals here. I mean in general, as, a, as, as somebody who has some assets, maybe as somebody who is a parent, what are you thinking about and what should we be thinking about when it comes to preparing for death? Yes, in the back. Avoid tax. Okay. This is a great one, right? Avoiding tax is something we should be thinking about. We just had a, you know, a discussion about this before Isha. I mean, subhanAllah, a portion of our tax dollars are going to bombs that are killing our brothers and sisters. This is not, this is not a disputable thing. This is fact, right? And so we should be utilizing all of the legal tools that we have to lower our taxes. This doesn't make somebody less patriotic, right? You don't get like extra American points for paying extra tax, right? So you just waste your money. The government is not going to give you a refund if you overpay them. Like if you go to Walmart and you pay too much, they're going to be like, sorry, you, I, you, I got to give you extra dollar back. If you give the IRS extra money and you don't ask for it back, they're not going to give it back to you. They're going to say thanks for your money, okay? You should have had a better advisor, right? You should have done better with your calculations, 
Okay, so we should do that. I don't think that's the primary reason to do this planning, though, right? I don't think that's the primary motivator for why people engage in estate planning, although I think it is a very important one. I think there are some more uh, motivators. What else? Generational wealth. So you want maybe a way to rephrase that is you want to ensure that your kids are protected and that they have enough to survive, right? Like everybody who's a parent, they want to make sure that their next generation is taken care of, right? Generational wealth might be to expand upon that, but definitely you want to make sure that, you know, especially as a parent, that your kids are taken care of, right? What else? Smooth transition. Okay, very good. Who's heard of probate? Who's heard of probate? I'll come to say, oh, Will. Who's heard of probate? Does anybody know what probate is? Dark so? No, Right. So probate is a state system. It's a state court system that is going to be responsible for administering your estate and distributing it after you pass away through the court system. Okay, is that a good thing or a bad thing? By and large, it's a bad thing. Okay, because there's no reason for it. If somebody's not Muslim, one of their foundational goals when they go and meet with an estate planning attorney is to avoid probate, whether if they're not Muslim. Now, as Muslims, I think it's even more important. Like, why do you want some secular judge who doesn't know anything about Sharia trying to figure out what to do with your wealth? Not only that, but it's public. Not only that, it takes a long time. It's expensive. It's inefficient, right? So you want to avoid the probate court system. This should be a principle, right? We want to avoid that system and privatize things so that we don't have to go through that. Again, it's avoidable if you take the right steps to avoid it. So essentially, the first thing is to manage and protect your assets while you're alive. So when you think about estate planning, one estate plan is to just give everything you have away. Right? If you have nothing, then you don't need a plan. So you could just give all your wealth away, but most people aren't going to do that. So you want to set up a plan in which your assets are protected. Now, this is a different bit of a field about you don't want people to sue you and take your stuff. That's kind of a level two of planning. We're going to table that, but that's just something to understand. Now, this is very important. Statistically, most people don't die suddenly. Most people don't die suddenly. So what happens in most cases is there's often a period of incapacity. And in the absence of a plan for incapacity, that can also be very problematic. Right, Dr. Sub? So there can be fights between family members about who's in charge, who makes decisions, what to do on end-of-life care, right? I'm sure if I ask the same question, how many fights have you seen about somebody in incapacity? (laughs) Right? So we don't only think about post-death. We're also thinking about incapacity with respect to finances, who's going to manage things if I'm not able to, who's going to manage healthcare decisions, right? Healthcare directives and such. I think these are very important conversations to have as a family and also to memorialize. Now, distributing everything according to Sharia. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made this unambiguous in the Quran. 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made these rules unambiguous in the Quran. And so we want to make sure that we comply with these things. In fact, the ayat, which we're going to come to in a minute, are so unambiguous, they're fractions, and algebra was developed in part to solve some Islamic inheritance questions. Like, this is like an amazing application of our deen for a benefit of society at large. If you look at the original book uh, of algebra, it's solving inheritance problems because it's all fractions in the Quran. You can read ayah number 11 and 12 of uh, Surah Nisa, Surah number 4, we're going to come to it. Now, after those ayat, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Tilka hududullah. These are the limits of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that whoever obeys and, 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 and uh, follows Allah and His Messenger, that He promises Jannah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us among them. The next ayah right after that. It's a very scary ayah. That whosoever disobeys Allah and crosses the limits of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that that person, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, will be in the hellfire. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala save us. Right after the verses of inheritance. This is not like a light thing. It's a very, very heavy thing. And then we talked about avoiding probate, minimizing taxes and costs, right? We don't want to go to probate. We don't want to pay extra to the government. We don't want to get things stuck, right? These are all things that are generally avoidable. Now, just one note about taxes. Um, so there are taxes in life and there are taxes on death, okay? You might not be familiar with it, but there are some taxes on death most people are not going to be impacted by them, but a large percentage of people still are. And there's an estate tax at the federal level, which impacts people who are, uh, you know, above uh, about $13 million. And then at the state level here, it's uh, above $4 million. And so if that's you, then you want to make sure that you are, you know, designing a plan and ensuring that you are minimizing those taxes because those can be very, very significant. This federal estate tax, if somebody has above that $13 million threshold, it's 40%. So it's very, very high. Now, obviously, it's intended and designed not to impact the average person. But nonetheless, if somebody does have that, they should absolutely do some planning. And perhaps I should just mention, I think I didn't make this disclaimer in the beginning, that everything we're talking about is general here. We're talking about generalities and we're talking about things that are not specific legal advice for you. But as an attorney, I'm giving just information both from the Islamic side and both from the secular side that is of general use for you. Of course, this isn't a substitute for you to go and then seek out you know, services from a lawyer uh, and actually create those plans and ask specific questions regarding your specific situation. Okay, so what makes a plan Islamic? What makes a plan Islamic? It's kind of an easy, e easy question. It's according to Sharia. It's really simple. It's really, really simple. Now, understand this point that the wealth that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us, it's not really ours. It's not really ours. That's the key. If you start to understand this paradigm, that whatever Allah gave you, He just gave it to you. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that give them from the wealth that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala He's entrusted, He's given you. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has 
given us this wealth, and after our death, the moment we die, it's not ours anymore. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has rules relating to it. Okay? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, كُتِبَ عَلَيْكُمْ إِذَا حَضَرَ أَحَدَكُمُ الْمَوْتِ إِنْ تَرَكَ خَيْرًا لِلْوَصِيَّةُ لِلْوَالِدَيْنِ وَالْأَقْرَبِينَ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ حَقًّا عَلْمُ الْتَقِينَ And this was an ayah that in early, in the evolution of the fiqh of inheritance, early on, they, the Muslims were commanded to create uh, and write down their will so that they were supporting those relatives near them prior to the revelation of the ayat of Surah Nisa. And once the ayat of Surah Nisa came down, then this became optional. Okay? They didn't have to write it because the default rules then became sharia. Uh, and so similarly, we have this famous narration that a person should not go two nights without writing down their will. Now again, if you are in a Muslim society, this really doesn't, is not required because the rules there are sharia in any Muslim civilization. Again, there's lots of lulm, there's lots of you know, injustice, people don't apply the rules correctly. That's a different story. But as a general matter, those are the rules. But not here. Okay? So this is why it's very important to write things down here. And we talked about uh, uh, this hadith as well. And the second part of this hadith was, وَهُوَ يُنْسَى وَأَوَّلُ شَيْءٍ يُنْزَعُ مِنْ أُمَّتِي That it will be forgotten and it is the first thing that will be lifted uh, from this ummah. And subhanAllah, I think there is uh, some element of this that we can see present today. That most people have never really had much detailed knowledge on this despite attending thousands of halaqat and khutbas in their lifetime. It's not a topic we typically discuss from the mimbar. It's not a topic that is typically addressed. And when you layer in the fact that you now need to know multiple legal systems in order to do this, it gets even more complicated. In one hadith, the Prophet ﷺ mentions that you will not be able to find an arbitrator to resolve a dispute on this issue of inheritance. SubhanAllah. So some of these prophecies of the Prophet ﷺ are coming true today. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us and enable us to fulfill these obligations. Okay, so we're going to talk about sharia and then we're going to move to secular planning. So what's the first thing that is, happens when a person passes away? I'm talking from a pure sharia. It doesn't matter what your plan says or you don't have a plan or whatever, but just from a fiqh perspective, what's the first thing that is supposed to happen? Right. Funeral burial costs, right? The, the cost of funeral and burial expenses needs to be uh, covered. What is that approximately here? Three to five thousand. Okay. So three to five thousand, for example, would be the cost of funeral and burial expenses. Now, this is um, something that you should make sure that it's accounted for. Alhamdulillah, the community is generous. So happens that nobody's left out and nobody doesn't get buried because of this. But one should make sure that it's not a burden left on somebody else. Right? And so this is point one. Another point that's important here, especially for converts, is that um, part of writing this stuff down is very important because... Uh, you want to make sure that you have a Islamic burial and ghusl and janazah and in the absence of writing there might be a family dispute about these things and so these things should be written similarly things like not wanting to have an autopsy and such these are good things to have in your plan so that there is no uh, dispute 
the, the doctors and the state is generally deferential to your wishes in the absence of you know, certain s- s- circumstances that are suspicious or such. They will be deferential to the wishes. Number two, debts and obligations. Okay? Duyun. So after debts are paid, you don't distribute anything until debts are paid. Now, the Prophet ﷺ, we know that he would not pray janazah in certain cases over people who had debts outstanding. This is a really, really big deal. And another hadith is mentioned in narration that the shaheed, the martyr, all of their sins are forgiven. But what's not forgiven? Their liabilities, their debts. Their debts that they owe to people. Now, we live in a society where people are in mountains and mountains of debt, right? The whole economic system is based on debt. And people have all kinds of different debt, consumer debt and student debt and car debt and business debt and uh, mortgages and you name it, credit card and all kinds of different things, right? As well as personal loans that you might borrow from other people. These things have to be written down. They have to be accounted for. They have to have a plan for paying these off, right? So some debts can be forgiven uh, on death. Like there are certain loans that are forgiven that if they're forgiven, they're forgiven. Some loans can be negotiated with certain creditors on death. If so, one should negotiate them. But they, ones that can't need to be paid. And again, they need to be documented and there needs to be a plan for paying them. What's third is the wasiya. The Quran says, مِن بَعْدِ وَصِيَّةٍ يُوصَى بِهَا أَوْدَيْنٍ Right? Inheritance rules come after debts and wasiya. So wasiya, when we say wasiya, often it's understood to mean uh, like writing a will. But here in the specific terminology that we are talking about, it refers to a discretionary portion of your estate not to exceed one-third. It refers to a discretionary portion of your estate not to exceed one-third. Again, that is from the hadith of Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas in which he came to the Prophet and he was doing estate planning. Okay? He said to the Prophet that uh, I want to give two-thirds of my wealth away. The Prophet ﷺ said, no. He said, how about half? He said, no. He said, how about a third? And he said, a third was thuluthu kathir. And even a third is a lot. So he allowed up to a third. And then he explained that it's better not to leave your children and your dependents reliant on other people. So if a person has enough to take care of their family, and let's say their family are all adults and they are you know financially independent this is an amazing opportunity this wasiya portion to build oqaf to build endowments to build institutions that are going to be perpetuating and self-sustaining for generations to come we were just talking about this earlier there was a a a, a study showing um, the wealth transfer that's going to take place in the next 20 years is in the tens of trillions of dollars. This is the estimate. Okay? And of that, on average, about 9 to 10% of charitable giving is uh, through, charitable, through bequests. So last, uh, last year, the number was around, Americans donated about $500 billion. $500 billion. Okay? So when we say, oh, you're always bothering us about fundraising, it's not just Muslims. This is just in general. Americans donated $500 billion. And almost 45 billion or so were in the form of charitable bequests, meaning in your wasiya, as part of your estate plan, right? I give to X institution upon death. 
And the Jewish federations, they actually have on their website, they state that they anticipate over $1 trillion, $1 trillion will be gifted from Jewish individuals over the next 20 years in the context of their dying. They've mapped this out. But we think about like, what are we doing? Okay, this is their projection from straight from the website. So this is an opportunity as a society. Alhamdulillah, Allah has blessed us with a lot. Allah SWT has blessed us with a lot. Now we have to be strategic in ensuring that all of the institutions and the things that we've built and are building, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives tawfiq to allow them to be self-sustaining. One of the easiest ways you can do this is through your wasiyah. To leave charitable bequests to institutions, non-profits, whether they're your own family foundations or they are existing non-profits, the masajid, this institution and others, so that they can be self-sustaining. I think this is very, very important. One of the big things I try to advise a lot of our clients is, look, if your kids are old enough and they're independent enough, do your own sadaqajariya here. This is an opportunity. Not just that, you might say, well, I do enough in my life. I don't need to give on death. Agreed, right? It's better to do it in your lifetime. However, upon death, you have access to more assets than you do in your life. What do I mean by that? Things like retirement accounts, okay? Things like retirement accounts for most people, if you want to donate them in your lifetime and you're working, is there a way to do that? Not without paying the taxes, right? But on death, you can donate them. So this is a big opportunity. There's a huge asset class. Maybe you're not going to donate your house while you're alive, but you might be able to do it upon death, right? So there's a lot more illiquid assets that become accessible on death. And then we have the mandatory shares, whatever's left, the fara'id, okay? So from whatever's left, we're going to talk about that. These ayat are largely uh, ayah number 11 and 12 of surah uh, Nisa, surah number 4. Okay, so again, I'm going to mention this, uh, this uh, slido thing uh, so that you can ask your questions there. There's actually a lot of questions here. Um, which is slido.com 2732782. If you have questions, you can text this. Uh, the, you can write your question to this, to this uh, number, 2732782. And there was a question about wasiya. I'm just going to mention it because it's relevant. Um, one of the things about the fara'id share is that it's reserved for Muslims. The fourth category in order to inherit, be one of the heirs here, you have to be Muslim. But the wasiya share does not have to go to Muslims. So if somebody has non-Muslim relatives, they can utilize the wasiya share for that purpose. And one of the other things about the wasiya share is that the rule is la wasiya tiliwarith. You cannot enhance the share of one heir through the wasiya. So you cannot say, oh. I want to give more to this child, so I'm going to do it through my wasiya discretionary portion. The rule is, it's for people who are not going to inherit from the residuary scheme. Okay, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I want to run through these ayat because they are fascinating. The precision is amazing. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals these ayat. They are just as applicable today, over 1400 years later as they were when they were revealed. And they have underlying them a structuring of society. And the first of these rules is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Allah gives you a wasiyah with respect to your children. 
the male child inherits double the share of the female child. Now, this in modern context is deemed to be controversial. But what is the underlying uh, wisdom that we all know uh, with respect to these ayat? Yes. Right. So this should be really clear. It's not based on a gender preference, based on some sort of superiority, but rather Islamic financial ethics are such that the male who inherits has rights and obligations to spend on his nearest female relatives, whether that's his daughter, whether that's his sister, whether that's his mother, whether that's his wife, right? Whereas the woman who inherits does not have any responsibilities further with that wealth. So if you think about it, in a sense, you could say Islam is not necessarily here about equality. Equality meaning that everybody gets an equal amount, but there is a principle of equity and fairness. That fairness determined by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that this wealth that is received is supposed to then be spent in this way and that way, etc., Right. So the obligation is not on the woman. It's the recipient and she is not responsible then for spending. Now, the, the, I'm, I'm sure there will be plenty of questions here about, well, what if that male child is you know, not good and doesn't spend? Right? That's going to be a different scenario. There's a lot of people who are not good, right? who don't follow the rules, who then don't you know, spend as they should. Right? So we'll talk about that. Um, yeah, there's already questions about those. So we'll talk about that as well. So now, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, If there are two or more daughters, they're going to take two-thirds of the estate. Two or, two or more daughters and no sons. Okay, two or more daughters and no sons, they're going to take two-thirds. And if there, are, if there is one daughter, she's going to take half. So you'll see these fractions that are in the Qur'an themselves. Now, this starts with children, and then it goes to parents. It's very beautiful. The ethics, right? The natural sort of thing of a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a parent is to take care of their children, right? This is what everybody generally wants anyways. But the Islamic ethic of taking care of parents extends beyond death. And this is very different from state law. In under state law, in any state, if you have children, what do your parents get? Nothing. Okay? In state law, if you have children, the assumption is it all goes to the children. Under sharia, So, each parent generally will get one-sixth if your mom and dad are alive, generally they're going to get one-sixth. But in certain cases, if there are no children or siblings, then the mother's going to receive one-third. Okay? So the share is either going to be one-sixth or one-third. And the father's share is either going to be one-sixth or he's going to become asaba or he's going to take one-sixth plus the share of the asaba. Asaba meaning residuary of what's left after all of this. So there's a few different scenarios. 
This ayah doesn't actually address all of the scenarios, but it addresses most of the common ones. And this is actually one of the reasons why there's not a lot of debate among the madahib with respect to inheritance, because it's so crystal clear. Allah says, مِن بَعْدِ وَصِيَّةٍ مِن بَعْدِ وَصِيَّةٍ يُوصِي بِهَا أَوْدَيْنٍ After the wasiyah and debts have been paid, then these things happen. Um... This is very interesting. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, between your children and your parents, and this is a question if you think about it, let's say if I were to take a poll, let's say a person dies and they have a two-year-old child and they have an 80-year-old father. Okay. Who do you think is more deserving of inheritance? The father. Why? No, no, I'm saying his, his father, like the grandfather. What do you think? The child. What about the bichara, the grandfather who spent his whole life, you know, taking care of you? Don't you? Is there some sense of inde- indebtedness to him? What's the two-year-old going to do? He doesn't have any, anything. Point here is, you could make arguments either way. You could say the child has the rest of their life in front of them. You could say the father is, I owe everything to the father who took care of you. You could say that, you know, you can cut this any number of ways. If you leave it up to us, like, you're going to, everyone's going to have a different answer. Allah says these are, you don't know, and these are rules from Allah. In Allah, and then what's so amazing about this ayah is that like as you're reading it, you might be thinking, oh, that's interesting, but like my family's different. This is in the minds of a lot of people. Like, yeah, it makes sense, but like, you know, my family's unique. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Inna Allah kana aliman hakima. Allah is most knowledgeable and most wise. That these rules are intended at a societal level to create, you know, social order. So then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in ayah number 12, وَلَكُمْ نِصْفُ مَا تَرَكَ أَزْوَاجُكُمْ إِلَّمْ يَكُلْ لَهُنَّ وَلَدٍ فَإِنْ كَانَ لَهُنَّ وَلَدٌ فَلَكُمُ الرُّبُعُ مِمَّا تَرَكْنْ مِنْ بَعْدِ وَصِيَةٍ يُصِينَ بِهَا أَوْدَيْنْ If a married woman passes away, then the husband, the widower, will receive one half of her estate if she is not survived by children. And if she has children, then he will get rubu, he'll get one-fourth. وَلَهُنَّ الرُّبُعُ مِمَّا تَرَكْتُمْ إِلَّمْ يَكُلْ لَكُمْ وَلَدٌ فَإِنْ كَانَ لَكُمْ وَلَدٌ فَلَهُنَّ الثُّمُنُ مِمَّا تَرَكْتُمْ And what does the wife get? She gets either a rubu' or thumun. A quarter or, no, not a sixth. One-eighth. Okay? So it's either a quarter in the presence of no children or an eighth in the presence of children. Okay, little trivia. Let's see if people have been paying attention. How many fractions have we had so far in the Quran? One-eighth, one-sixth, one-fourth, one-third, one-half, two-thirds. Right, two-thirds usually gets forgiven, right? forgotten, right? Okay, so all of these fractions have come so far. One-half, right? One-third, one-fourth, one-sixth, one-eighth, and two-thirds, these six fractions. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says this is the, the shares for the husband and for the wife. After wasiyah and debts have been paid. And then he talks about kalala. 
وإن كان رجل يورث كلالة أو امرأة وله أخ أو أخت فلكل واحد منهم السدس فإن كانوا أكثر من ذلك فهم شركاء في الثلث من بعد وصية يصابها أو دين غير مضار وصية من الله والله عليم حليم The kalala has different definitions uh, but it basically refers to somebody who has neither ascendance nor descendants and some difference of opinion here uh, that's not going to be the case for most people so I'm going to skip that one for now in the interest of time but basically somebody who does not have uh, ascendants or descendants then their siblings are going to start inheriting and then the siblings will inherit at certain rules here you'll notice this, this ayah specifically references maternal siblings half siblings whereas ayah number the third ayah of inheritance is ayah number 176 the last ayah of surah nisa and in that ayah, it also discusses kalala. And in that ayah, it references full siblings. Okay, so that's just a little bit advanced point. We're going to skip it over. Now, let's talk about how does this work? How does this work in practice? So let's take an example. We have a married couple, Ahmed and Sara, and they have children, Umar, Sumeya, and Khadija. If Sara passes away, who gets what? Okay, let's go one person at a time. Ahmed, the husband, what does he get? One? One-fourth. Everybody agree? Why is that? She has children, right? So he would get a half with no children, but here he's going to get a quarter. What does Aisha get? Aisha's her mother. One-sixth. Remember? The mother and father, generally speaking, they're going to get one-sixth most of the time. Okay, so she gets one-sixth. What about the children? Umar, Sumayya, and Khadija. This wasn't explicitly mentioned, but it was the first part of the first verse. Two to one. Boy to girl, two to one. Of what remains? They become asaba. They become the residuary heirs. So we pay Ahmad and Aisha. And then whatever is left is going to be distributed at a two to one ratio. So basically we're going to cut this into four shares. Sumeya and Khadija will get one quarter each. Umar will get one half each after the one, the one sixth and the one fourth have been paid. Everyone's in agreement? Okay, so that comes out to these fractions here. Now, what happens under state law? Now we're going to shift from Sharia to state law. What happens under state law? All goes to Ahmed. What other ideas do you have? All goes to Ahmed. Everybody agree? The age of the kids? Okay. No, we don't have a will here. <laughs> okay. So, all right. So there were a couple different answers. Let's start with the scenario. This is why this now gets complicated. There were some answers about, the, depends if they have a will or not. That answer actually may or may not be true. The first thing you have to look at is how were the assets titled? Okay? The first thing you have to understand is how were the assets titled? Even before that, these fractions, if you don't know the denominator, can you do fractions if you don't know the denominator? What was Aisha's? What was Ahmed's? I mean, what was Sarah's? What was Ahmed's? Nobody knows. Right? Most of the time, in most households, Nobody knows who, what belongs to who. Just everything is joint and, you know, everything's going fine, alhamdulillah, for now. 
<laughs> right? So that's fine, but you can't do fractions if you don't know what you're dividing. So you have to be super clear about what belongs to what person. Now, let's assume that they had a house and it was jointly titled. What happens to the house? It goes to Ahmed. Okay, this is very clear. If it's jointly titled, there's a right of survivorship, it's going to go to Ahmed. Let's assume she had a 401k and Ahmed was the beneficiary. Goes to Ahmed, right? And similarly, they have joint bank accounts and so on and so forth. Everything went to Ahmed in that scenario. Now, what happens if she had, Sara had a will and she said, I want everything to be according to Sharia? Same assets. Joint house, joint bank accounts, beneficiaries on the 401k. And now she writes her will. Okay, one option is it will be distributed according to Sharia. One spousal property goes to the husband. What else? Any other ideas? No. What did I say at the outset? This is one field where you cannot apply Sharia unless you understand the rules that are relevant with respect to, to the, the law of the land that we live in. The contract will beat the will. Okay? So the will will not have any effect. The joint ownership will pass to the... Uh, not necessarily joint ownership, but specifically the right of survivorship. If it has a right of survivorship, it will go to the survivor. If you own your property with something known as a right of survivorship, which is how most people often own their properties, it will go to the survivor. And if you have a beneficiary, it will go to the beneficiary. And if your joint accounts are titled joint ownership or they have a TOD or a POD on it and you already wrote somebody's name, it's going to go to that person, regardless of what your will says. Okay? Make this point really, really clear that the will is to actually do nothing. In that scenario, it will go to the survivor. Now, if she had assets that were only in her name, okay, that were not jointly titled, that did not have a beneficiary designation, now we have one of two scenarios. If she has a will, the will has to go through probate still. Wills still have to go through probate. I want to make this point really clear. If you have a will, you can get your ultimate distribution the way you want, but again, after going through the court system. And if you don't have a will and you don't have joint ownership and you don't have a beneficiary, then you go to probate and the state law will govern. In this case, interestingly, 100% uh, of jointly titled property and beneficiary designations, under state law here, it's going to be a split between the wife and kids. It's split between wife and kids. Okay? Now, most people would say uh, going to spouse is not a bad result. Would you agree? I mean, these guys have topis and beards and it's nice, like, you know? Is it a good or bad result? Not necessarily good. That's the right answer. Not necessarily good. Maybe it's fine. Maybe it's fine. Again, if there's understanding, there's agreements, there's really, like, really solid agreements, then fine. But what are the possibilities of what might go wrong here? No, she died. She died. He gets married, right? Correct, right? So it's possible that he gets remarried. It's also possible that he's just grieving and he just doesn't do anything, right? It's just difficult. He doesn't have the ability to figure this out right now. 
It's also possible that he is supposed to do something but doesn't, not because he doesn't want to, but he just goes lazy or he gets sued. And there's a lot of different possibilities of why that might go wrong. Again, it might be fine. It might be fine. But you have to understand the risk of that plan, which is just kind of punting it forward. The biggest risk, of course, is that Ahmed gets remarried. So now he gets remarried and he gets married to Hajar. They have, <clears throat> Hajar had previous kids. As you can imagine, this scenario gets more and more complicated. Ahmed dies. Bichara, he still didn't make a will or a trust or a state plan. He didn't learn from the first experience. Now who gets what? Okay, right? So now we're even in a more complicated situation where if he had bought things jointly, it's going to end up with her. And if not, it's going to be split between her and his kids. But who gets nothing? The mother of Sara. Remember, there was a mother. Who's going to get nothing is the mother-in-law. Right? And she was entitled to what? One-sixth. And whose obligation was it? Sara, right? The point here is that there's different ways to achieve these obligations, okay? One is, like I said, very solid conversations within families. I think this is very, very important. During marriage, before marriage, right? Like premarital, uh, with your children, tarbiya, setting expectations so there's no surprises, all of that is really, really foundational and important for making this work. But at the same time, you've got to take the steps to make it legally binding as well. Because people fight about money every day, even in you know, good families, unfortunately. And so these things should be very, very clear. Uh, so you have to combine both elements. If you just write it and you don't tell anyone and you don't have any expectation and tarbiyah and all of these things in your family, then people are going to fight even though there's a legal document. And if you only do the internal stuff and you don't have legal documents that can also create problems as well all right so we talked about this already okay like i said defining property ownership this is the critical critical part of islamic estate planning in america that is missing okay is who owns what you cannot do these fractions until you define these things okay so, very important, beneficiary designations will control regardless of what you write in a will, as will rights of survivorship. Without clarifying ownership, this doesn't work, okay? So, very, very important uh, to have clarity. Now, I will mention a couple of things also about here. Under Islamic law, what the... So, I live in Arizona, which is known as a community property jurisdiction. Um, community property means that the assumption is it's 50-50, in the case of death or divorce, the assets are split 50-50, regardless of who earned them. Whatever wealth is acquired inside of a marriage, it's deemed to be 50-50. Okay? Now, some people say that's more fair. But what's really interesting is if you invert it and the wife is the higher earner, under Islamic law, she would keep how much of that wealth? 100%. She would keep 100%. Okay? So let's say the wife earns and the husband doesn't do anything. If she keeps 100, he has zero. Under this community property regime, he's getting 50% of her work, right? So people say Islamic law is unfair, but in this case, Islamic law would be much more giving to the woman than the state law would be. And this is the case for at least half of the U.S. And in general, in, you know, in oftentimes in splits, they're going to be split down the middle. And so uh, there's just something really important to have clarity on. And again, 
taking the steps to make that clarity legally binding is really important, whether that's done informally or through, you know, prenuptial agreements or postnuptial agreements. I think all of these things are very, very important uh, as part of one's estate plan. So um, a few more minutes, inshallah, we'll finish in about 10 minutes. What are some documents that I think everybody should have? So now we've moved from conceptual Islam, the importance, the understanding, some of the practice. Uh, now we move to uh, what should a person do? So practical steps. Yes. The code, yeah. Slido is uh, slido.com and 2732782 is the... Um, Number for asking questions, 2732782. Yeah. If we go through these questions, we'll be here all night. <laughs> so, okay, so some basic documents everybody should have. Number one is a will. Okay. It's called a last will. Now, terminology is important. Just understand the words. They're all very similar. So last will and testament. This last will is different from a living will. Oftentimes people say, I want a living will. What is a living will? No, a living will is your health care directive. Your end of life, you know, the directive for, for what to do at end of life. This last will is, is your wishes, the written, you know, the will. Which is different from a living trust, which we'll talk about as well which is different from a foundation, which is what we talked about previously in the earlier session as well. Okay, so the will is where you put guardians for your children. It's where you say what you want to happen to your wealth. Again, it doesn't cover joint property. It doesn't cover beneficiary designations and it has to go to court. So it's a relatively suboptimal way to plan, okay? It's like a better than nothing approach to planning, but it's really not the preferred way that I think Muslims should do their planning. The second document is a power of attorney. This is for incapacity. Uh, you want to give somebody else authority to do things on your behalf. I think this is important as well, as we said, for incapacity purposes. Healthcare directive. Okay, so we don't have a lot of time to talk about healthcare directives, but this also is very, very important. Designating someone to make healthcare decisions on your behalf if you are not able to. This eliminate. this, I can't say eliminates, but this uh, mitigates... Uh, family disputes, right? This mitigates family disputes. If somebody's in charge, uh, then that person ultimately, they should make shura and they should make mashwara and they should talk to, you know, the, the religious doctors uh, that know this field. But ultimately, even within a family, oftentimes there's a lot of fights here. And similarly, you put things uh, in your uh, directive about, specifically about end-of-life care. Right? And these questions of pulling the plug, of organ donations, of all these advanced bioethics questions that are really, really important, these should be addressed in, um, in uh, the advanced directive. Now, in most cases, I think the solution, the better solution is the trust. Okay? So, how many people have heard of a trust? You know, a good, decent amount. So, in my opinion, regardless of where you live, um, some people, some people, uh, I mean, some states are better than others. Like probate is harder in certain states and easier in other states and more costly, etc. But in general, you should try to avoid the court system. 
Like, why do we want our affairs to go to court? Some people describe probate as a lawsuit against yourself. A lawsuit against yourself. It was just a total waste of time. Okay? So we should try to avoid it. And we can avoid it by organizing our affairs more properly. You know, a lot of times people think trusts, again, are for very, very wealthy people only, right? And you have to be some multimillionaire. But not really. Like, anybody can create one. And you, it's, a, it's, it's essentially a, a, a bucket that you create. And you put your assets inside of it. And the, the thing, the, the entity, the, 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 the trust, this invisible wrapper, becomes the owner. Okay? And because that thing doesn't die, it doesn't have to go to probate. And you set up all of your affairs in that trust. The who is in charge, what happens, all of that. So let's go over the will first, then we'll go over the trust. So the benefits of a will, number one is name guardianship for children. Anybody who's a parent who has minor children, you got to do this. You got to make sure that you have guardianship assigned for your children. Allah forbid, la samahallah. If there's a loss of both parents, or if somebody's a single parent, what happens? The state custody, that's the worst possible result out of all of this, right? Allah grant us all afiyah and protection, right? Like, we've got to have this. Got to have a basic plan just to have guardianship. If, for no, if you took nothing else away from this, right? This is just basic. Now, what about if a person has no relatives in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, even more important, right? It might be that you have a bunch of relatives, they show up, great. Like, they're going to obviously come and take care of your kids. But if somebody has no relatives, like, this becomes even more paramount, right? So this is very important. Um, and then you name somebody to be in charge. They're known as executor or personal representative. And then it can describe who gets the assets that already are not going to be governed by joint titling or beneficiary designations or payable on death, transfer on death designations. The limitations are... They have to go through the probate process. Um, and we talked about the limitations. And the, the, it's not very, like, sort of advanced planning techniques are not usually found there. What does it cost? It's ranges, right? I'm just giving you an all. There's a lot of Muslim attorneys in Chicago, right? There's a lot of options. Um, so they range. We actually, at this website in the corner, this Muslim.estate, you can create a free will, absolutely free, okay? Uh, and it will allow you to go in, calculate your errors and everything. We built this to basically provide a simple free service for the Muslim community. Again, it's for simple cases. It's a better than nothing solution. I do not view it as a substitute for creating a real plan. But if you're not the type of person who's going to take this information and actually do anything with it, then at least do this. Just do it. Like it's a, it's a simple, like it takes you five minutes you can create it and you can print it out. You get two witnesses and at least you'll have something, right? So it's, it's www.muslim.estate. It's free. You can also go to a lawyer and uh, there's also other free will, there's other will, you know, uh, services online. You can do self-help uh, or you could go to a lawyer and typically you're going to spend a few hundred dollars to do these things, maybe a little bit more depending upon complexity, right? Just to give you some kind of ex expectation, maybe it costs a thousand, maybe it costs 500, maybe it costs a little bit more, something like that. Um, um, generally speaking, it needs to have witnesses. If you notarize, even better, right? Yeah, two witnesses. That's gen generally the rule. But you want to have whatever the state rules require. You want to make sure you meet those rules um, and have those. Better alternative for most people is a trust. Yes. 
Uh, we just mentioned, uh, generally speaking, the rules are you have to have witnesses, right? Those witnesses for best practice should not be related to you. They shouldn't be your kids. They shouldn't be the people you name, etc. And if you can do those things in front of a notary, it's even better, right? Um, so you want to make sure you meet those and whatever the, the requirements are. Uh, you want to make sure that you meet them because otherwise it's not going to be legally valid. So that's like a getting started point. If somebody has a will, again, it's a starting point. For most people that have accumulated some wealth, probably the better solution is a trust. And here you're going to actually move things into the trust. The trust is actually going to become the owner of your house. And the trust is going to become the owner of your assets. Okay? So the trust can own bank accounts. The trust can own businesses. The trust can own LLCs. All these different things you can own or you can own them. And you can have a trust for your wife and a trust for your husband. You can have a trust that's joint. You can have a trust that's 50-50. You can have a trust. All kinds of different arrangements couples can agree to as long as they both agree to and they meet certain formalities around those things. Um, then we can do things Islamically. We can distribute our wealth according to Sharia. Now again, we're going to have certain tax considerations where we want to minimize the state taxes and we have Sharia distributions and there may be a conflict between those and you're going to try to harmonize them and try to come to a resolution of those. My intent is just to kind of give you a high level. Valid in every state. This is important. Assume you have a property here, you have a property in Indiana and you have a property in Florida and you have another property in New York. If you have all those properties, how many probates do you need to do? No, and if you don't have a living trust. Every state, you've got to do probates in every state. It's, a, it's a, even more of a hassle and more of a waste of time. Or ancillary probates, at least. So we want to avoid that kind of result. If you have a trust and you have you know, properties in the trust or properties that are in LLCs that are owned by the trust, then you can avoid probate in all of those states. So even sort of better way to do this. Now, I want to maybe just talk for a minute or two about this point. SubhanAllah, the Qur'an talks about distribution of wealth in the most amazing way. It says, وَابْتَلُوا الْيَتَامَ حَتَّى إِذَا بَلَغُوا النِّكَاحِ فَإِنْ آنَسْتُمْ مِنْهُمْ رُشْدًا فَادْفَعُوا إِلَيْهِمْ أَمْوَالَهُمْ It says, وَابْتَلُوا الْيَتَامَ Test the orphan. Test the orphan. Test them what? the ability to take care of their wealth. Meaning, give them a little bit, see how they do. فَإِنْ آنَسْتُمْ مِنْهُمْ رُشْدًا Once you determine that they've reached this age of رُشْد, then you give them their wealth. Then you give them the inheritance. The Quran says, وَلَا أَمْوَالَكُمْ Don't give foolish people your wealth. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a principle, alhamdulillah, of, of protecting this. Now, what was رُشْد in... You know, the time of the Sahaba might be 14 years old or 15 years old. Like, kids were leading armies and things, right? You give a bunch of money to, let's say, an 18-year-old boy today. Is that generally a good result or a bad result? <laughs> that was like unanimous, <laughs> right? So this is another function of this trust is that you can determine, the trustee can determine. Either you can determine in advance or you can give the trustee discretion when to determine and give out wealth. This is very fascinating because we were talking, Mawlana Farhan and I were talking on the, 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 uh, uh, before and it was just in the drive over about this concept of, you know, what's appropriate and 
you want to give your children, you know, you, as a parent, you want to protect your children, but you don't want to give them, you don't want to ruin their work ethic, and you don't want them to be lazy, and you don't want them to, you know, not have any, you know, sort of good habits. And so this is really like an a, a important thing to consider. Inside of this trust, you have a lot of flexibility to solve these kinds of things. Um, you don't want to, it's their haq. So you don't want it to be, you know, at such a high age, but you also don't want it to be at such a young age and so on and so forth. Also, maybe you give wealth to a child and then they get divorced and then it gets all taken by the ex-spouse, right? There's so many different things you got to think about here with respect to inheritance that make these kinds of complexities worth discussing when setting up these instruments. Like everybody comes into this conversation thinking, my situation is simple, I just need a basic will. And the reality is, no, it's probably not, and there's a lot more to it, right? So that's why these things are important. What's the cost, right? Million dollar question, right? Again, varies, but I would say if you went to several attorneys, you would get price ranges from maybe a couple thousand dollars to maybe five or six thousand dollars for these types of family trusts as a ballpark range, right? It's like buying a car. Different trusts have different features. Someone's like, I bought a car for a thousand dollars. Like, okay, much like probably the car is not going to get you very far, right? But then somebody bought a hundred thousand dollar car. Okay, you know, so there's different perspectives, different, you know, uh, components, different functionality, different types of trusts, right? There are, what we've been talking about so far is uh, revocable trusts, living trusts, which are changeable, and then there are irrevocable trusts, which you will um, do for like, you know, tax planning, for asset protection. If somebody's a physician, they want to avoid getting sued. Not, you can't avoid getting sued here, but you can try to protect your assets from somebody taking them in a lawsuit. So those are things that you can do. Um, business succession, right? For most small businesses, there's no succession plan. Right? Person dies, all the work and everything is kind of finished. Uh, charitable planning, a lot of... Uh, one thing we didn't talk about was hukukullah, uh, which are unfulfilled religious obligations, can also be accounted for. Uh, you missed, you know, haven't gone for hajj, you can write that down. If you, um, uh, especially for sisters, if they've missed a number of Ramadans for, you know, uh, pregnancy and for nursing, and maybe there's co compounded a lot of fasts that they haven't made up, these things are supposed to be accounted for. And fidyas should be paid uh, if zakat has not been paid, etc. Um, and sadaqa jariya components. And finally, as we said, asset protection from creditors and such. So, um, I'm going to skip this one. We talked about this one. So, um, this is uh, my information. If you have questions relating to today's presentation, you can send them to Slido. Uh, Slido.com 2732782. And if you have questions about your, that are not specific to, or that are not relevant, or that are not general in nature, uh, and you have other questions, you can contact uh, my office that way. Or you could do this with any local attorney, right, as well. Like I said, there's a lot of attorneys here, mashallah, in Chicago. My intent in doing this presentation is really one of uh, education and ensuring that uh, our community understands these concepts and is motivated to plan in a way that we uh, don't waste and squander our wealth in probate and such, uh, and fulfill our religious obligations in doing so. And I'll leave you with one hadith, and then we'll maybe take a couple questions and stop, which is to give you uh, 
some, some sense of how valuable this discussion is. The Prophet ﷺ tells uh, Abu Dhar in one hadith that if you go out and learn a chapter of knowledge, even if you're not implementing that, you're learning a chapter of knowledge. And we don't generally get to learn a chapter of knowledge as like adults. Like obviously the students, mashallah, here, they're learning constantly and, and, and learning and teaching. But right, as adults, uh, we're not necessarily engaged in, in, in full chapters of knowledge and we're learning a chapter that is probably not so, uh, you know, most, many people are not aware of. Prophet ﷺ mentions in this hadith, خَيْرٌ لَكَ مِنْ أَن تُصَلِّيَ أَلْفَ رَكَعَةٍ is better than praying a thousand rak'at of optional prayer. So, subhanAllah, there's a benefit to just learning these things. But then, of course, we want to, you know, inspire uh, our community to do these things and in doing so also benefit institutions like Dar es Salaam uh, for, uh, uh, with our wasiyah share as well. I think this is a big part of all of this. So, um, with that, I'm going to stop here. Uh, it's 9.15 and um, I will take a few of these questions and then inshallah we will also answer some of them after Fajr after I've had a chance to look through them how's that? what's that? okay we'll leave them here for now um, so we'll officially stop here so that if you want to go you can, you can go inshallah and if you want to stick around for a few minutes, we'll answer some of these questions. So, like, officially, you're uh, free to go, inshallah. If anything, if there were any mistakes or uh, anything in this presentation and you want to uh, reach out to me, you have the ability to do this. If you have questions, you can also reach out to me there. Um, I will be uh, flying back tomorrow, inshallah. So, I'm only here for a short trip uh, to Chicago. Yeah, 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 of course. So the whole idea of the trust is you want to build in, it's not like Islamic trust like with a special like thing. It's just inside of the trust, you're going to put Islamic inheritance rules and all of that into it so that that trust becomes Islamic, right? So absolutely. The whole purpose of doing the trust is so that you can apply Islamic inheritance inside of that trust. No, no, no. Trust is a, it's a concept. It's, 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 it's a thing. Like it's a, yeah. Abstract, yeah, yeah. It's like a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a fictional bucket. You're going to put your stuff inside of it. Okay, so it's like, a, it, it's real and not real. It's like an invisible wrapper. It has some reality to it. Kind of like a corporation on some level, right? It is a legal entity in some, some instances, and in some instances it's ignored. But yes, this, it's a thing that owns all your stuff. You still control it. You're still in charge of it. After you die, you pick somebody to back up to manage it. After they die, you pick somebody else. You put all the inheritance rules into that thing. No, you name a trustee in there. Inside of the trust, you say, I name Ahmed to be my trustee. If I'm no longer alive, I name whoever. And you put a list of people. All right. So, let's see. Um, so, some of these questions were answered as we went along. So, beneficiaries and what are the percentages? Again, you can look at the ayat. Uh, how can the wife... Oh, okay. So th there's some questions about one-eighth is not enough. I want to address that one. So, okay. I want to address this point, though, because I think this is a very important point. Um, you are allowed to do whatever you want if you're alive. As long as you're alive and you're not in your deathbed, you can do whatever you want. 
So the person who asks this question about one eighth is not enough for my wife uh, if something were to happen to me, fine, gift to her while you're alive. Nobody's stopping you. I give this advice all the time. You know, if you are concerned about the well-being of your wife, of your daughter, especially if you're your wife, gift to her. You know, make sure that she has enough, that she's taken care of in your lifetime. And they're like, I don't love her that much, you know. <laughs> so, uh, so if you have these concerns, you're totally allowed to gift whatever you want. It's free. You can put everything in her name. You can gift everything to her. While you're alive, you can do anything you want. These rules have to do with what happens with what's yours on death. Similar, similar, similar question comes obviously for daughters. I want to make sure my daughters have enough. Gift to them. Gift to them in your lifetime. Set them up. Make sure they're protected. Right? Yeah, you can. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's lots of different ways to do this. Accounts, properties, investments, whatever. Right? You can do whatever you want to make sure. The principle of gifting in Islam is that it should be fair. It should not be dhulm. It should not be unjust. Right? Uh, but if there's a compelling reason to take care of one child, you can certainly gift to that child, like absolutely, right? And so you shouldn't be afraid to gift in your lifetime. You're free to gift. Um, if you don't like one of your kids and you try to gift everything away because you don't like that kid, obviously that's going to be sinful, right? But if you're trying to make sure in a society that, I mean, look, in, in Muslim societies, historically, the girl could go to the qadi and say, make my brother pay my rent. She can't do that here, Right? She can't do that here. So it's very valid to think about the, the well-being of that, of that daughter. You know, what if she doesn't get married? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if? Okay, fine. Set that up while you're alive so that she's taken care of. So this involves planning. Now you might say, well, she's too young. She's this or that. So you keep, you know, throughout the course of your life, you keep updating this and you keep making sure that they're taken care of. Um, percentage of disownment no it's not allowed yeah so you cannot say I don't like this kid the Quran gives the share it doesn't matter how good or bad the person is there's only a few circumstances where you cannot dis where you disinherit someone which is one is kufr the other is they kill you <laughs> So, so, so that's hopefully doesn't happen. May Allah protect us. Yeah, yeah, this is a good one too. So uh, if somebody has a special needs child, again, they should do a lot of planning for that. Special needs is a reason to plan. They should plan in their lifetime. They should set up a special needs trust. They should do this kind of planning. Uh, this is something, these types of things you have to consider. Like again, the rules are for societal ordering when there are specific unique cases, a person has a special needs child, not only is it important to make the plan, but the government benefits are based upon what a person has. And if they inherit a bunch of money that they can't use anyways, they're going to get disqualified from government benefits as well. So structuring in those circumstances becomes even more important, right? All of these things are, um, are very, very important. Um... Okay, last question I'm going to stop here is uh, what do you do with assets abroad? 
It's probably a common question that impacts a lot of people. You have some property overseas. What do you do with that? You got to plan for that over there. The plans that we set up here are not going to govern what is uh, abroad. No matter what country it is, you should make a plan over there for the assets that are in whatever the respective country is. The U.S. plan. Yeah, there could be a fight. There could be just chaos and whatever. Yeah, if somebody has something in Pakistan or Syria or India or wherever, they should make a plan over there. They should consult some expert lawyer or something over there. They have, you know, even though it's not the norm, I think, over there for everyone to do active estate planning, there are certainly, you do have the ability to write wills in these countries. It's optional. It's just not as required. And so you can meet someone and you can work with them over there. This is very important. You can't put property from overseas in your trust? It doesn't work well. Generally speaking, we say if it's international property, you should deal with it in the host country. Um, there's some limited circumstances, but the short answer is no. It, it's, it's not a good vehicle for international ownership of property. Um, okay, this is the last question, just to leave on a... Actually, I'll skip this one. <laughs> so a question about uh, if a person has more than one wife, how does the share split? <laughs> the share will split. The eighth will split, which will mean there will be even more fighting. Um, so the one-eighth share will split among uh, 16th, or in the case of this person, four, one-thirty-second. Um, maybe it's a hypothetical question. All right, we'll stop here, inshallah. Hopefully you found this beneficial. And inshallah, if you have more questions, you can send them still. We'll try to cover some of them tomorrow, inshallah. Jazakumullah khairan.